low quantum brains. You are in for a real treat with this special two-part episode of the Into the Impossible podcast with your fearful host, Dr. Brian Keating. It is I who is still emerging from pandemic podcasting featuring one of my first most eminent guests who came on way back in early 2020, and that is, or 2019 maybe even, uh, and that is Sir Roger Penrose. Uh, I've had him on many times, and uh, this time we had him on to talk about a controversy, or as he would say, controversy, uh, regarding some claimed um, evidence against his model of gravitational collapse of the wave function that implies the uh, the conscious experience that we experience in our brains, courtesy of little devices uh, engineered by Mother Nature or God, if you will, called microtubules. So it's a very complex theory. It's called the orchestrated objective reality reduction. Uh, a lot of R's, a lot of O's. And um, it's been uh, transfixing many people for decades. And now there's evidence against this from an experiment. But we talked about that with famed uh, theoretical physicist Sir Roger Penrose. And uh, his colleague in all things consciousness related, at least in the squishy, wet computer that sits on our shoulders, and that's Dr. Stuart Hameroff, who's an anesthesiologist, but a very interesting uh, scientist as well. And Stuart has been doing experiments on living tissue uh, for many, many years since he wrote to Sir Roger after reading The Emperor's New Mind, which I read as a 15-year-old. I didn't say I understood it, but I read it at least, and I was tickled pink when he endorsed my first book, Losing the Nobel Prize, before he would go on to win the Nobel Prize, as you'll find out. Um, and this is a two-part episode, uh, so I had a couple of difficulties with the part one video crashing in the middle of it. We had an uh, objective state collapse, so it's turned into a two-part episode. So you'll listen to uh, a part one now, and hopefully you'll stay tuned to part two. Part one covers the basics of what is orchestrated objective reality, what are the uh, recent complaints or conjectures against, criticisms against this um, this theory by experimentalist at the foundational questions think tank it's a physics think tank uh kind of interesting they did an experiment in a particle physics laboratory that's normally populated by my friends uh lena april and kaishwan ni past guests who run the xenon uh experiments that look for dark matter um, so it's kind of amazing the same facility in italy can do a lot of different things including weigh in on the notion of consciousness so you'll learn about that and then stay tuned for part two i'll have a little blurb about that after you enjoy this uh first part of two with Sir Roger Penrose, winner of the 2020 Nobel Prize, and Dr. Stuart Hameroff. Enjoy. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. All right, we are live with Sir Roger Penrose and with Stuart Hameroff joining us from various locations around the world. Uh, and hopefully everyone out there will enjoy this wide-ranging uh, conversation on consciousness, the brain, quantum mechanics, and controversy, or controversy, as we say. Uh, and that has to do with some recent developments, both experimentally and in the world of the theory basis for what is called ORC-OR, which we'll talk about. But first, a very important announcement. I want to wish a happy 91st birthday to Sir Roger Penrose. Roger, how, do you, how does it feel to be 91, to reach midlife? I'm not sure I am yet, am I? What's the, what's the date? <laughs> well, I think uh, it's the 5th, 5th of August. No, I've got, a, I've got three days to go. So three days, okay. So three days of being <laughs> the 90, only 90, yes. But you're in the 91st year. Um, that, that's correct, yes. And Stuart, you are joining us from where? 
Banff in Canada, where I've been attending a workshop uh, related to the uh, experiments we did from a Templeton grant to test uh, Orcawar, looking at uh, quantum effects in microtubules. And Roger uh, zoomed in uh, all week and gave an excellent talk also. Ah, that's fant uh, fantastic. And there's been a lot of news. And Stuart, I've meant to have you on uh, for a long time. And uh, this is kind of a, a special treat to have both you guys on at the same time. And, and really, the occasion is this uh, dramatically kind of progressing field of consciousness. In fact, just last week, Roger, your ears were probably burning because we had a, uh, a live webinar with some friends in the UK and around the world that I hosted for the Institute for Art and Ideas. And the question was about reality and the role that quantum mechanics plays. And quite frequently, we invoked your name. In fact, we said many times, we asked uh, Eric Weinstein, Sabina Hassenfelder, Carlo Rovelli, all uh, PhD theoretical physicists, we asked them uh, to comment on your comment, uh, as you have said in the past, that consciousness reeks of something quantum mechanical. So I want to ask you, Roger, um, first of all, how, when you think about the role of quantum mechanics that you learned from Dirac uh, and that you taught, uh, at least to me, the first time in The Emperor's New Mind 30-plus years ago, um, has your, how has your thinking evolved on quantum mechanics and its role in consciousness, if at all? Well, there is an important development which has happened, I guess. I mean, a lot of things are very similar to what I thought in The Emperor's New Mind, the, the ideas I put forward there. Um, and I should point out, you see, people often regard it as, as uh, very revolutionary or something that quantum mechanics could be involved in consciousness. But the point is that my view is that it's even worse than that, in that it's not quantum mechanics being involved. It's where quantum mechanics is incomplete or, or even not quite correct, because quantum mechanics has a big puzzle right at its roots. And some people kind of resolve this by invoking consciousness in the sort of opposite way that I do. You see, the question is, there's a thing called the Schrodinger equation, which tells you how the quantum state evolves in time. And this is an equation which uh, is very deterministic, just like Newtonian mechanics and that sort of thing. So if you know what the state is now, it will tell you what the state will be in 15 minutes from now, and so on. The only trouble is that it doesn't, because uh, it only tells you what the quantum state is, and the quantum state, um, you make measurements in order to find out uh, what the thing tells you. And to make a measurement, you have to involve something else that's not part of the system. You sort of wheel the measuring device out of the cupboard and get it to measure the state, and then you wheel it back into the cupboard again. And the trouble is that if you were consistent, you'd have to consider that that machine you just wheeled out of the cupboard is also following the Schrodinger equation. And if you do that, you get nonsense. You don't get one answer to your questions. You get a, what's called a superposition of different alternative answers. If you want to get one answer, you've got to do standard quantum mechanics, what's called making a measurement. And what's called making a measurement involves violating the Schrodinger equation. Now, Schrodinger was absolutely clear on this. He was one of the people who was completely clear. And that's why he considered this thought experiment of a cat in a box. And you put this cat into a superposition of being dead and alive. 
And Schrodinger would say, look, this is ridiculous. You couldn't have a cat that's dead and alive. But lots of people say, oh, we'll have to try and make a machine which actually makes a cat dead and alive. What Schrodinger was pointing out, that quantum mechanics as understood, in other words, following his equation, gives you nonsense. It tells you that you have cats that are dead and alive at the same time. Now, some people would take the view they did in the early days of quantum mechanics, that you need a conscious observer to come along and it's the conscious observer who, who looks at the quantum state and that makes it be one thing or another rather than both things at once. Now that's ridiculous in a way and I don't want to go into why it's ridiculous, but it was very strongly held by quite a lot of very distinguished physicists in, in, at the time. Now you see, the view I hold is almost the opposite of that. It is that the state does reduce itself, that is to say, the cat becomes either dead or alive spontaneously, not because anybody looks at it or even the cat looking at itself, but because this, this superposition is too big in a certain sense, and that it spontaneously becomes one or the other. And it, has to, and, it, and it does this with something much, much smaller than the size of a cat. It's a very tiny effect which could make it go, become one or the other. And this involves, in my view, um, bringing the general theory of relativity in. This is Einstein's theory of gravity, curved space-time, and all that sort of thing. And when you bring this into quantum mechanics, you find that you have a conundrum. And the, the way, out, way of resolving this conundrum is to say that instead of having these superpositions of two things at once, there was a certain lifetime of that superposition. And the bigger the superposition is, the shorter the lifetime is. Mm. So with it, if it was a cat dead or alive, it would be virtually instantaneous. But you can, could have something very, much, much smaller than that, and it becomes one or the other in, in a time that you can calculate. And the idea that Stuart and I have been trying to develop is that in the brain, or primarily in, in things like microtubules or big collections of microtubules probably, that it's that's where one thing or the other thing happens. And the process of one thing or the other thing happening, well, that's what we, we refer to as, as proto-consciousness. Proto-consciousness is sort of the building block out of which consciousness is built. So the reduction of the state, as I say, the, the quantum state choosing one or the other rather than both at once, that process is something outside standard quantum mechanics, but it's something which you can make predictions about if you bring Einstein's general theories of relativity into the picture. And it gives you a time scale for how long the superposition can exist before one or the other happens. Mm. The claim we make is that each time this choice of whether one thing or the other happens, that's what we call proto-consciousness. And as I said, it's the building block out of which actual consciousness, which is, involves many, many of such processes, actual consciousness comes about. So mm. that's a sort of summary of our point of view, except in detail of what's going on, which is, uh, Stuart has much better ideas about that than I do. So Right. Yeah, so, and Stuart, this, the conference that you've been at um, involves some kind of uh, orchestration as well, because you've been talking about uh, how we can identify experimentally where consciousness might take place. And I wonder if you could kind of give an, a slight overview, maybe a recap uh, for the audience that might not be as familiar as, as, as I am. But um, 
I said in a, in a tweet I put out, you know, that Sir Roger's book, The Emperor's New Mind, really influenced me. It was the first popular science book I ever read as a 15-year-old. And uh, then I was tickled when he endorsed my, my book, uh, Losing the Nobel Prize, my first book, which allowed him still to go on and win the Nobel Prize a few years later, despite <laughs> his association with, with yours truly. Um, but he said, yeah, he was disappointed in that book because at the end, you know, he kind of speculates and he was hoping that he'd get some fresh young people and uh, with new ideas, et cetera. And he got, well, you were young. I mean, you're not, you're not that old now. So you couldn't have been that old 30 years ago. <laughs> it was an exception. These were mainly the old retired people who got hold of me. There were a few younger people, and, and Stuart was, was one of the younger people. So what jumped out at you about that book uh, that caused you to take the risk and, and, and start this relationship with Roger that's persisted for the last 30 plus years? Right. Well, I had, uh, at that point uh, in the early 90s when I read it, uh, been studying microtubules inside cells and particularly inside brain neurons. I had I got interested in microtubules in medical school and studying uh, uh, mitosis in a cancer lab where the, these mitotic spindles, which are microtubules, pull apart the chromosomes in a very highly orchestrated dance to get exact separation of uh, uh, duplicate pairs of chromosomes that go on to each becomes the daughter cell. And if that isn't perfect, then you get uh, you can get uh, a cancer, you can get maldevelopment, and so forth. And so everybody else in the lab got really interested in the chromosomes being the dawn of the genetic uh, revolution and so forth in the early 70s. But for some reason, I got fascinated with these structures, which seemed to know where to go and what to do. It seemed to have some kind of intelligence. And I had been interested in consciousness from my undergraduate days. And so I wondered whether these uh, structures, which turned out to be microtubules, might be processing information. And I was primarily interested in the brain and um, uh, thought that they might support uh, processes inside neurons uh, leading to consciousness. Because if you think about the neuron as a simple on-off switch, as most people do, the brain is a complex computer of simple neurons, then you treat each neuron as a one or a zero. But actually, if you think of a single cell organism, like a paramecium, it swims around, it finds food, it finds a mate, it has sex, it can learn. It's very clever. It doesn't, it, I'm not saying it's conscious necessarily, although it might be, but it has intelligence and it, it uses its microtubules. So at that time, the structure of microtubules was discovered to be a lattice, a cylindrical lattice with, in some cases, Fibonacci geometry. And I spent a number of years uh, uh, looking at uh, information processing models in microtubules as, uh, as basically molecular uh, scale computers, uh, which increase the uh, information capacity uh, inside neurons tremendously. Uh, about a billion tubulins switching at 10 megahertz gave you 10 to the 16th operations per second per neuron, whereas uh, neural net people, AI people, the singularity people were saying, no, there were 10 to the 16th operations per second in the entire brain. And when that was met, we have brain equivalents and consciousness. And I was going around being a pain in the rear end to AI people saying, no, your, your target's way, way downstream. You're being uh, naive and, and insulting the neuron by saying it's a one or a zero. And they would say things like, go away, kid, you bother me. You know, <laughs> what do you know? And, uh, and, and, but then one day somebody said something very, very, important and profound to me, he said, let's say you're right. How would that explain consciousness? You have all this information processing at a deeper level and you have 10 to the 27th 
instead of 10 to the 16th operation per second. How would that explain feelings, love, joy, emotion, the color pink? And I had to admit, I didn't know. And I was a bit stunned to be categorized as a reductionist, but that's what I was. But fortunately, that person suggested I read Roger's book, The Emperor's New Mind, which I did. And I was really fascinated and blown away by it. The bottom line being that he had a mechanism for consciousness and nobody else did before everybody else it's it's or even still today kind of hand-waving arguments about complexity emergence uh maybe it's fundamental maybe it's panpsychism but you know who knows but he had a specific mechanism which at the time i didn't understand and still don't completely understand but i I've, I've certainly studied and pondered it um, uh, for many years and so i thought you know, in the end of his book, he said, well, we need uh, a quantum computer in the brain that will collapse by his OR mechanism. And uh, he was he mentioned that, you know, neurons, axons firing and not firing, that superposition was <clears throat> was too large scale. And I agreed. And I wrote to him and I told him about microtubules and that they might be the quantum computer collapsing by uh, his objective reduction that he was looking for. And uh, he uh, he agreed enough to uh, so that we met in his office. I happened to be going to England and uh, I told him about microtubules and he appreciated very much. And that started our collaboration. And when, you know, most people think about quantum mechanics and I said, you know, I love you guys and, and uh, you've, uh, you've all been generous with, uh, with your time and, and conversing with the public. But, you know, today's not just purely a love fest because uh, we just found out it's not Roger's actual birthday. So we, we can ask, uh, uh, you know, does the emperor have clothes? And what is the most common objection, Sir Roger? What do people say? I know what I think uh, as an objection, but, you know, I'm not as erudite uh, in this field as, as most people. What's the most common objection? And what do you think is the best objection to ORC OR, if any? Maybe the best objection was my own objection at the time, which was when I wrote The Emperor's New Mind, I could see no way. I tried to learn about nerve propagation, and I learned about the Hodgkin Huxley problem, you know, and all this kind of stuff, which is the official way in which signals were sent around the brain. And I thought, there's no hope. You see, I thought by the time I learned these things, I would finish off my book with a great dash and say, this is how you explain quantum <laughs> consciousness. And I, I couldn't. It just didn't make any sense to me. And so I kind of petered off with not really knowing what I was doing. And then I got this letter from this unknown person to me, uh, Stuart Hammeroff, I get lots of crazy letters from people who say, is this another crazy letter? What are these funny little tubes he's talking about? I've never heard of them before. <laughs> and then I look them up and I find, oh my gosh, he's right. <laughs> and so I communicated with him and we got together. And this was the first time I could see a route to something where you could possibly, you see, you need, you ha you, what you need in order to, to, for this kind of scheme to work, you need... Um, some isolation so you can get your quantum degrees of freedom don't get sort of spread out through the brain as it would be if, if, if it was just nerve propagation then there are these electromagnetic fields which spread out and they they simply do what's called decohere decohere and the and you just lose everything so you need something mm -hmm. which have the, has the hope of, of preserving these degrees of freedom these quantum mechanical degrees of freedom and the microtubules looked to me the best thing I'd ever seen as a possibility for doing this. I think we, we still have to work hard to, to, and I think it's, they're not any old microtubules, they have to be organized right. 
and they have to do something like uh, well I knew about the I knew various things about the brain for example that the cerebellum which has well as I now know more micro more neurons in it than the cerebrum I didn't know at the time I think they didn't have the numbers right then but I certainly they were comparable whereas the cerebrum where see our sort of conscious thoughts seem to be connected with the cerebellum it seems to be pretty well unconscious yet it's got all these neurons and why are they not being conscious right who comes up with now what I think is a much better understanding of what the difference could be and that is these cells called pyramidal cells which are simply not present in the cerebellum and this is the first time I heard of something where you see a key difference and where the cerebellum doesn't have these things and, and that would explain why it's not conscious hmm. and typically you know when I see people objecting to you know, orco R uh, etc it's it's and the objection that well quantum mechanical effects you know don't take place at room temperature inside of uh, squishy wet environments etc uh, etc et and I wonder you know Stuart uh, what what objections and you're not a quantum physicist you're not a physicist at all you're an anesthesiologist with a deep and abiding interest and fascination in these topics but the question I have you know is how um, what, was it a solution in search of a, of a problem? In other words, you know, could it have been any other cell? Uh, what is unique about microtubules, and how can they persist, not decohere at room temperature inside a wet, uh, squishy environment? Right. Everybody said, well, obviously the brain is too warm, wet, and noisy for uh, delicate quantum effects. They would decohere. But the brain is not a, uh, a homogeneous monolithic material. The brain is highly heterogeneous, and th this occurs in various ways, different uh, anatomical reasons, as Roger just said. But as an anesthesiologist or a pharmacologist, and we're kind of applied pharmacologists, we think about where drugs go and how they act. And the, the, the body, the brain, has different compartments of solubility. So for example, most drugs that you, you either take in a pill or in, uh, IV, IM, however you take it, wind up uh, binding in an area that fits their solubility. So most drugs are polar. That is, they have charges, they are soluble in water, and they bind to charged uh, receptors usually on the, on the surface of cells. Anesthetics are completely different. They are nonpolar. They are hydrophobic. They avoid, they go to places where water doesn't go. Uh, it's oil and water don't mix, okay? So that's basically the idea. And uh, there's a, a, a pretty good percentage of the brain and body in general that is nonpolar, that is hydrophobic, that is comprised largely of, for example, aromatic rings like benzene, which is, you know, gasoline if it's in bulk form, but in individual uh, molecules it can have very delicate uh, quantum effects. And all the psychoactive uh, molecules, uh, serotonin, dopamine, the psychedelics, are, are, are composed of these uh, aromatic rings which have pi electron resonance states. So, and, and these pi electron resonance states, they fluoresce, they luminesce, they do all kinds of things that are basically quantum optical effects. And, and the anesthetics, and they tend to, these uh, uh, amino acids that have these rings tend to coalesce inside proteins, and that's where the anesthetics go. They bind in these uh, nonpolar hydrophobic regions uh, 
which we've come to call the quantum underground, by the way, because that's where the quantum stuff happens. They, it forms a uh, decoherence-free subspace with limited degrees of freedom uh, that is very conducive to, to quantum effects. And in fact, uh, we've shown this. And um, so that's where the, the anesthetics go and they bind only by very weak quantum forces. So you have uh, molecules that are otherwise inert, even the inert gas xenon is an anesthetic that goes to these uh, uh, places in the brain that have these nonpolar uh, pi resonance ring, uh, rings and they, uh, in fact, they bind all over the body in fat stores. There's more anesthetic in, in a patient's rear end than in their brain, but obviously it works in the brain. Just like there's a lot of anesthetic in the membranes and lipids uh, in, the, in the brain or fat around the body, and, but that's not where they work. All they, all they do primarily is affect consciousness. They have uh, very, very few other, uh, other side effects. They're fairly selective and specific. And these so are ubiquitous, have, right? Stuart, these are, exist in all animals, uh, you know, so. Microtubule, yes. Yes. All but, brains. But they're, right. Mm -hmm. they're, yes, but they're arranged in a particular way in the pyramidal cells uh, that, that I'll come back to. But um, so there's this hydrophobic uh, region. The anesthetics bind by, Vander, by quantum forces, Van der Waals forces. So you have this uh, strange situation where these molecules go all over the body and uh, bind by these uh, uh, quantum forces everywhere. And yet all they do is affect consciousness. And what that says to me is that consciousness involves highly organized, highly coordinated, orchestrated, delicate quantum processes that are easily interrupted. If, if the anesthetics go into the, the fat of somebody's uh, fat store somewhere, there's no, there's no organized quantum stuff going on, so there's no effect. So it suggests that, that uh, consciousness depends on highly organized, orchestrated quantum effects. And in fact, that's what we've been uh, talking about all week at this uh, conference because uh, we got funded from Templeton, as I said, and we've been doing experiments in two different labs looking at quantum optical effects in microtubules and then showing that those effects go away with anesthesia. Mm. And uh, Roger, this uh, quantum object, you said you were surprised that these microtubules existed and they seem to be designed. Um, when I think about quantum mechanics, uh, you know, typically, yes, there are collapsing wave functions or superposition states. But do you think we can even have a theory of consciousness that is quantum mechanical before we solve something like the measurement problem? Or do you think that that is not necessary as a precondition? I would think it's the wrong way around. That hmm. is to say, I mean, I think that we're not going to put it like this. I don't think we're going to have a theory of consciousness until we have a theory of state reduction. That is the collapse of the wave function or the <clears throat> whatever you call it. Um, whether we will have one then, I don't know. But mm -hmm. uh, I think that's another step, you see. We still don't understand why or how the wave function collapses in any detail. I mean, there are schemes about this, and one of these um, is, is my own, but that's, we, lots of people have different views on this. It's certainly, and lots of people don't even believe it, you see. Lots of people haven't thought it through. <laughs> they think somehow you don't need a new theory in quantum mechanics. I don't quite know why they, they ignore the collapse of the wave. It's called collapse of the wave function. You know, the right. wave function is supposed to chug along according to the Schrodinger equation, then suddenly it collapses. And this is known right from the beginning. I mean, Schrodinger, with, with his introduction of this theoretical story about the cat. So uh, he was obviously very worried about that phenomenon. 
Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, that's a wrap on part one. Stay tuned for tomorrow's episode. We go really deep. It's uh, more than twice as long as this episode, and it involves all sorts of very, very fascinating topics, including uh, what is computation? Can consciousness exist in more or less, fewer than two dimensions, uh, or three dimensions of space, rather, and one dimension of time? We'll talk about uh, artificial intelligence, the simulation hypothesis. And I want you to stay tuned because I do have uh, Dr. Professor Nick Ballstrom uh, at Oxford, colleague of Sir Roger, who has a course of superintelligence conjectures about um, uh, super advanced artificial intelligence. He's coming on the show. Stay tuned for that. Um, this coming week, Dr. Sabina Hassenfelder will be on the show talking about her new book, Existential Physics. And remind you, go to my YouTube channel and subscribe, Dr. Brian Keating, because when I post videos like this one with Stuart and Roger, uh, and like I will with Sabina, you can ask questions in the live chat. And I relay them and I broadcast them and you can ask questions to these eminent authors, thinkers, scientists, and how often do you get to do that? That's part of my mission. I want to convince you all to, uh, to really take part in the scientific enterprise. As you know, I believe that scientists have a moral obligation to give to the public in terms they can understand ideas that are at the cutting edge. And that's kind of my way to do it, is to have the scientists come on chat live with you. You can do that live in the YouTube live chat, and that's go to Dr. Brian Keating, subscribe. Also subscribe to my mailing list, Dr. Brian Keating. No, it's not Dr. Brian Keating. Scratch that. It's just briankeating.com. I couldn't get the Brian Keating Twitter account or YouTube account. Somebody's squatting on it. If you know them, maybe convince them to sell it to me because um, I feel a little bit pompous always calling myself doctor, but it's the only choice I had um, that was at least brief. And you can ask questions of my guests there too. Uh, Dr. Brian Keating on, on YouTube, Twitter, and on uh, Instagram. So hope you enjoyed this episode, this first of two parts. Now, stay tuned tomorrow. And while you're waiting, if you wouldn't mind, uh, on any of the apps that you're listening, you can leave a rating of this podcast. Just a simple five-star review uh, will do me just fine and will make a nice birthday present for Sir Roger. So I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Tune in tomorrow for part two.